how do we ensure that we respond to the needs of our natural world? And and it is just imperative that we are inspiring and instilling and rewarding curiosity, creativity and questioning. Since I've been a little girl growing up in Zimbabwe, one thing that was very prominent to me was that the world around me and the devices that I was using around me were not created with the people around me in mind. In reference to what questions motivate me, what is an urban space, and what histories are condensed in it that render such different life circumstances for people. This is the Nairobi Ideas Podcast, a podcast that gives a public platform to the Africans changing the world with their big ideas. I'm your host, Kare Mugo of the Moazo Institute. This episode is brought to you as part of our African Future series, exploring Africa's future through the eyes of its next generation of researchers. You can find more episodes from the series wherever you found this episode. In our first episode of the series, we're excited to share a taped discussion from a live event we hosted back in June of 2022. For this conversation, we asked Dr. Wangoi Kimari, a Kenyan urban scholar, and Julia Jinjezwa, a Zimbabwean product engineer and educator, to help us explore what the future of higher education might look like within the region. Both Wangoi and Julia are what I would call friends of Mawazo. And as we have gotten to know them, we've become really interested in what I would call their non-traditional approaches to their work. So for this conversation, we asked them to join us on our first Twitter Spaces live event, where we explored research practices that, at their core, embrace co-visioning and co-design. The kind of approaches that we think can strengthen how we practice, teach, and engage in research on the continent. We hope you'll enjoy this discussion as much as we did. Thank you to everyone who's joining us here today. My name is Kare Mugo, and I work as the public engagement lead at Mawazo Institute. By passion, I am a storyteller. I'm also deeply interested in current affairs, politics, and more recently research, thanks to the work that we do at the Mawazo Institute. The Mawazo Institute is a Nairobi-based nonprofit that is building the capacity of African women researchers to contribute to development issues. We also engage in policy and public engagement with the goal of building science cultures in the communities that we work in. We'll start with an introduction from our CEO, Dr. Fiona Moyes, and then we'll do an introduction of our speakers today who are joining us to basically unpack what the future of education, particularly high education, might look like if we were to apply new approaches around co-visioning and co-design. And we have Julia and Wangoi who will be offering insights from their experiences. I will go ahead and hand over to Fiona. Thanks so much, Kari. And thank you so much, everyone, for, for joining us today. This is our first ever Twitter space event. And um, <clears throat> I rarely use Twitter. And so I've just realized my photo is from a very long time ago when I still had <laughs> an afro. But um, <laughs> thank you so much all for joining. Uh, it's really nice to kind of take this, you know, this space to to speak about, about you know, the future of education and, and what do we even mean by that? But first, I just want to give a quick introduction to, to those of you who are not aware of what we do at Mawazo. At Mawazo, we support women researchers who are curious, they're creative, they have a critical way of thinking and looking at things and an analytical way of looking at things and ensuring that these women are in places where impactful solutions are being designed and implemented. And so we do this uh, in two different ways. The first is by providing professional development and training and mentorship, networking uh, opportunities, as well as access to funding through our Mawaza Learning Exchange Fellowship Program. This is open to all African women who are currently PhD students across the East African region at the moment with dreams of going uh, Pan-African at some point. Um, and then the second approach is our it's it's our Mawazo Voices program, and this is where we really elevate and spotlight the work of African researchers, with a with a focus on on the research being conducted by African women, and we do this through activities that fall under our public and policy engagement kind of sub programs, and this includes an event like this, the Nairobi Ideas Exchange. And so last year, we we launched a number of different events and activities under the, the very timely themes of COVID-19 and climate change. And so this is our third thematic of, of kind of this series of themes. And this is this, the theme is called African Futures. You know, African Futures is really looking to a future 
Africa, in which African ideas are building a new, sustainable, equitable, and innovative Africa. And often when Africa is talked about, you know, it's through the lens of, of intractable challenges, poverty, disease, you know, and, and, and we always seem to be reacting to problems rather than being proactive with novel solutions. And so we really want to refract this perspective and, and we want to do this through a series of events and activities where we will showcase the work of researchers and subject matter experts within working within the larger East African region and whose areas of expertise address development needs across six different areas. The first, which is this one, the future of education, the need for curiosity-driven science on the continent, the future of food and its security, the future of African cities, the future of health, and finally, what are the African approaches to climate change adaptation, which is, you know, we can't get enough of talking about climate change. It's a now issue. It's at our door. So bringing it to this particular space, and what are we talking about here? What do we mean when we talk about the future of education? There's a real need for basic education to respond to real life, to things that are happening right now, right now. And and this includes looking at the needs of our communities and every single unique person that is that lives them. You know, how do we ensure that we respond to the needs of our natural world? And and it is just imperative that we are inspiring and instilling and rewarding curiosity, creativity, and questioning, and ensuring that all the different experiences and expertise and fields are able to understand one another, to ensure that a wide range of experts can join hands to build a really resilient and holistic future. And so we're here to really invite researchers, research institutions, learners, academics, parents, to explore how new approaches to our understanding of academic success and curriculum training can improve educational outcomes on the continent. Um, and just some quick examples, you know, within our Mawaza Learning Exchange Fellowship Program, we've got two, you know, we've got fellows that are really working on issues that are going to affect Africa now and Africa in the future. This includes fellows who are studying things such as astrophysics. You know, we have a space analyst as part of our one of our fellows. And this is showing the need for that curiosity-driven science and really rewarding that curios creative mind, that curious mind, because they're going to be the ones who are going to come up with new solutions, new approaches to 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 address our issue, our problems. Um, we, we, all know, we also want to talk about resilience in, in higher education, and, and there will be up and coming articles coming up on this uh, shortly uh, after this. And please, you know, have a look out on our website. There's going to be blogs coming out. There's going to be podcasts coming out, too. And yeah, so I just really want to really ask everyone to keep an eye out on our socials, our websites for, for more material to come out about Africa Futures. And so with that... Let's get started. Let, let me hand it over to Kare and our wonderful, wonderful, wonderful speakers that we have today, uh, Julia and Wangui. So back to you, Kare. Yeah, thank you so much for that introduction, Fiona. So again, good morning, evening, afternoon from wherever you are joining us. If you're in Nairobi right now, it's a bit moody out there, the weather, but thanks for taking the time to be here. We're just going to dive into the discussion with Wangoi and Julia, and I will just quickly introduce them via their very brief bios, but I would really like for them to spend time talking about themselves in their own words. So Julia Jinjezwa is a Zimbabwean product designer and engineer educator. She has a background in mechanical engineering uh, from Yale University, and she has worked to develop novel devices in response to problems identified in America, Tanzania, Kenya, and Nepal. She also creates custom curricula to train students in practical design and manufacturing skills. So that is our first panelist. And then we have her joined by Dr. Wangoi Kimari, who is a Kenyan urban scholar with a special interest in urban political ecology for African cities. She is currently based at the Madari Social Justice Center as a participatory action researcher. She's also at the Institute for Humanities in Africa at the University of Cape Town. I'm going to go ahead and direct the first question to Julia. One of the things that I think has emerged for me as a non-scientist out of the dozens of conversations I, I keep having with um, researchers scientists is that there there's a deep and open curiosity about something that sort of ignites you know your science journey or your career and I'm just wondering for you Julia how would you describe you know your personal science journey and and what has been driving 
your exploration or your interest in the fields that you are working on. Thank you, Kari, for that introduction and for having me here today. And thank you to the entire Mawazo team for organizing today's talk. It's an interesting start to begin by looking back, but I think as long as, long as I've been, since I've been a little girl growing up in Zimbabwe, one thing that was very prominent to me was that the world around me and the devices that I was using around me were not created with the people around me in mind. So whether that was a refrigerator that would break down after three power cuts, you know, not designed for something that's very prevalent in my country, to something more drastic to not being able to find custom diabetes testing strips for the one machine that is created. So that's really where my curiosity started with the desire to think about how can I create devices that affirm the experiences of the people around me and the people who I think are sometimes in greatest need. So when I went to college, I really was eager to learn how to make things and how to really create a world. And that's when I ended up in mechanical engineering and working within product design with a key focus within resource limited settings. So mostly humanitarian settings and trying to design for those areas. And within that work, um, responding to humanitarian disasters with engineering skill sets, I realized that you know the, the world needed more engineers kind of thinking about breaking down these big, large problems into um, solutions that really fit the, so the, the, the communities in which they are trying to impact. And that led me to engineering education, this desire to ensure that the realization that there were a lot of other people who were experiencing what I had experienced growing up in Zimbabwe with recent limited resources and without the ability to really create solutions that are fitting for their environment and fitting for who they are. So that's really the center of the work that I do, really coming out of a desire to empower people to create the world and create the devices that affirm their life experiences. Could you talk to us a bit more about, you know, where you have worked when you talk about, you know, um, these areas with limited resources? What kind of engagements have you had and what kind of products have you come up with? I think my earliest memory is my sophomore year of college, really being eager to use whatever few skills that I had learned to really apply them in some way within the world. And I connected with an organization known as Field Ready, who do work really at the right after uh, humanitarian disasters. And in 2015, after the earthquake in Nepal, there was a need for medical devices of various kinds. And there were engineers in the field who had 3D printers. So with just basic one semester of computer-aided design, a 3D modeling software, I was able to 3D model a couple of devices, including a kidney basin, really critical devices that I could email to an engineer who had a 3D printer in the field, that device was 3D printed and used in response to that work. And that really informed that ability. I, you know, the problem came from the actual source, the people in Nepal who needed the healthcare workers in Nepal who were trying to respond back to me with whatever practical skills that I had and being able with just an email to really impact a place quite far away with whatever practical design and manufacturing skills I had. So I think with that knowledge, I was really emboldened to continue. So since then, I've worked with um, in Kenya trying to create novel uh, wash devices. So designing ways in which we can consolidate waste with specific focus on high density areas. So what would be the most efficient device to collect waste in Kibera or like really high population density areas? I've also worked um, in the U.S. training members of the U.S. Marine Corps, how to use technology and leverage this technology to create solutions in one of the most resource-limited settings, which is the battlefield, and also creating devices in response to that. And then most recently, I also worked um, in response to Hurricanes Irma and Maria. Uh, I worked with a group of people who were in the field immediately after Hurricane Irma and Maria hit the U.S. Virgin Islands. And with just a few manufacturing tools, we were able to actually create solutions for power to enable people along those islands to have access to power with very simple manufacturing skills, but really trying to meet people where they were, uh, identify resources and leverage practical engineering skills to create a tangible impact within these people's lives. And then most recently, I've been 
Um, I just my most recent job. I've been working uh, running a makerspace in Tanzania, and there we've done a lot of work, particularly within the COVID nineteen pandemic, where uh, me and my students work to manufacture and distribute over 2,000 units of PPE across the country, um, in addition to multiple other devices. But I think with all of these um, interventions, I think the core parts are the need coming from the people themselves who require it, um, and then finally the leveraging of practical hands-on engineering skill sets to make a tangible device that fits within the environment in which we are trying to work. Very powerful work that you've been engaged in. And Wangoi, the same question around, you know, what's what's driving your work, I guess, but posed differently, you know, research is really about asking a question and then finding its answers. So I'm curious what questions you have been asking that have um, led you to the work that you are now carrying out. And then if you could tease out a bit of what it is that you do on a day-to-day basis um, and and the organizations you're affiliated with. Thank you, Kari. Really, I'm really inspired by Julia. I don't know if I have a trajectory as noble as as Julia, but I will just try and elaborate on it a bit. So I'm I'm an urban anthropologist, and really I got here by virtue of living in Nairobi, which is a very segregated city. Uh, Really, the zoning of Nairobi is still in some ways shaped by an apartheid legacy of colonialism. And I became what I often say is an, an accidental urban scholar because of just being a really a middle-class person who has to one day in, uh, I think it was 2007, I went to visit my friend in Madari. And just the different life circumstances that I encountered more viscerally, whether it was in terms of police killings or the dire, dire lack of water or the life chances that people are faced, facing and continue to face really led me to uh, hold in comparison my own life as a middle-class Kenyan and the lives of other peers who didn't have the same fortune in Madari. And so just thinking about these these existences which are so differentiated but in very extreme ways in even in terms of life expectancy made me think about for example and just in reference to what questions motivate me what is an urban space and what histories are condensed in it that render such different life circumstances for people and but above all i think the question that really um maybe puts a fire under my behind. I don't know if I can say the other alternative for behind on this <laughs> on this space. But the one that puts a fire under my behind is to think about how can we make Nairobi more just? And uh, as a, in many ways, quite a, uh, I'm shaped really as a researcher. Research, conventional research does not always lend itself to to taking up actions that are people-centered and that are that are immediate, uh, and so I, I try and couple my my academic work, which is largely informed by people's struggles, with participatory action research that I do at the Madari Social Justice Center. I mean, as much as as you feel that the paths are so different, what I hear from you and and Julia is sort of this reflection on your personal experiences of the world and then sort of identifying something that you can offer a contribution to or want to make a contribution to and then figuring out, you know, what what is that path? And and for Julia, that becomes, you know, engineering. And for you, this becomes um, um, social science. And you've mentioned participatory action research. Um, Do you mind exploring for us just a bit more what you mean by participatory action? research and how this works within the Madari Social Justice Center, which is where you are currently based. So participatory action research is basically community research. And the emphasis, I think, on the long name is to show the particular ideological position that participatory action research wants to uphold. And this is importantly that everyone has knowledge to bring to the table. It's participatory, not just people who have PhDs but that we need to have an action that 
target structures and not just this research for research's sake, but that is participatory and that informs an action. Ultimately, community research and what people have been doing in various forms uh, in indigenous spaces. At MSJC, for us, each campaign, we have a few campaigns, which are I won't uh, tally them here for you or rattle them off, but we have a few campaigns and uh, we try and anchor each campaign in, in participatory action research. And participatory action research is important because the question, if you can say the research question, is shaped by everyone present and the priorities of the context, the process is shaped and the outcome is shaped. And so far, when we first started in 2014, the key question, which was an entry point into thinking about other structural violence in Nairobi, but the key question we wanted to deal with is why are killings of poor people normalized? And so we, uh, as our foundational campaign and our foundational participatory research outcome, this is what we looked at and we documented through conversations or through Mamamboga bringing a, a documentation of her son or her neighbor or someone bringing the documentation of their brother, we ended up documenting uh, 803 police killings in Kenya between 2013 and 2016. And this is just collaborative research that everyone participated in and that everyone uh, shaped. And it, it continues to be necessary, the report that we wrote is called Who is Next? The Normalization of Police Killings in, I think, in Madare. Um, but that research continues to shape our campaign against police brutality, against extrajudicial killings. And since then, since this foundational campaign, which I help coordinate, we've done research on disability justice issues in Madare, water justice issues. We want to do work on ecological justice issues. And how our, besides the process that we uh, take up, which is very people-centered, the outcomes are also different. For example, if we, our, our water report is not just talking about the level of pathogens or E. coli in the water, it's also talking about the social choices that people are left with if they don't have water. Women talk about having to choose between washing their baby or cooking. Or, you know, all of these actual life choices that people have to make. And in the end, this kind of research, because it's been contributed to by everyone, is owned by everyone and then anchors not just an MSJC campaign, but can become an auxiliary document that people can take up as part of their own advocacy, whether it's in Madare or beyond. I think as someone who's just a big fan, I don't know if that's the correct word, of the work that Madare Social Justice Center does, um, to be able to just hear from you around how, you know, the reports come about, what areas you're or issues you're going to explore are sort of source for the community is such an important um, aspect to bring out. And I think this is one of the things Mawazo is really passionate about, I think what I would call a science for all approach that, you know, sees not only anyone who's interested in science being able to participate in scientific inquiry, um, even though we don't label it, label it capital S science, I'm not sure that everyone that works with you might consider themselves a scientist of some sort, um, but also just thinking through how science can also, the application of it should also benefit all members of society. I'll throw back to Julia again, just wanting to tease out how is it that and now thinking of your role as an educator, how are you thinking about um, what projects or, or engagements you are going to have within the communities that you're working with? And here I'm thinking of a conversation that we had a few months ago um, around the experience of COVID-19 and what the makerspace in Tanzania was able to do. And so just wanting to understand how you decide on, on product design um, and who is engaged in that decision. Making. I think that's a very key question because I think from the top of the call, what Fiona mentioned, that there's a lot of problems you could work on. And I think identifying exactly what to work on really ties into this idea of participatory action research, which my education and the way I'm an educator, I really focus within the human-centered design thinking space. And one thing within the field of human-centered design thinking is the concept of co-creation and uh, in-situ needs finding. So I'll start with in-situ needs finding being that whenever a problem is identified, you know, it's not just by hearsay. We don't get, a, my students don't get a brief um, from any person on higher up. When we would try to look for problems within the communities, 
our students, we would go into the communities to actually speak to people who go through, who actually encounter the problem themselves. So this might look like having a field trip where we take our students a handful and we take them into Tanzanian hospitals. We get them to speak to not just, you know, the heads of wards who can, you know, inform really higher level issues, but also healthcare workers, nurses, and where appropriate, even patients. Um, so really trying to identify the users and really trying to center the users who you're trying to design for from the initial stages of this creation. And that really helps to narrow down what it is that you're going to design, because users are usually quite good at identifying their own priorities and even sometimes even suggestions. So if, once you've identified the need and kind of honed on what the most pressing need from the users, whoever those users are, coming back into our maker space, one of the things I love to tell my students is, you know, it, as engineers, we don't just create for, we create with meaning that throughout the product design process, we reach back to the people who we are collaborating with. We talk about making as a collaborative effort with us bringing some technical expertise and then bringing the lived experience of encountering the problem and really centering and value. I think that there's a way in which technical people, we can value our own experience over the experience of people who are encountering the problem. So what is really key to the way I teach and my own product design perspective is the idea of in situ needs finding, going right there where the problem exists and through observation and talking to multiple people, identifying where the problem is and then not leaving them behind where the problem is, but really taking them with you throughout the co-creation process to decide on iterations, whether you would you like this or this, that decide that decision within product features is better made by the user or a patient who's actually going to experience the device than your engineering professor who's um, you know sitting in his lab all day. So really trying to center the users and center the people within whose lives you're trying to make an impact in is very critical to my approach towards uh, design thinking and education. It occurs to me, you know, because you're working in a learning environment um, where you have multiple dozens of students. And I'm curious about what is the what is the actual hands on experience of going through the design of a device and working with and working with, you know, say a patient, for instance, are we taking the entire classroom um, to a hospital and standing around a bed? You know, what does it actually look like to take learners through um, people centered design There's an example you can offer us? That's a very insightful question, and there's many courses taught on it, but I will try to be in brief. And I think it ties in the idea of, you know, having technical people who also have soft skills. So having people who are engineers but can also hold a conversation and are also culturally aware in some times. One thing that I think we're very lucky about is we never really have a lot of problems with people being like trying to turn us away. People are usually quite eager to talk about their problems. But as an educator, you know, I teach a class before we go out into in-situ needs finding where we, we have a discussion about what things to think about when we are interviewing people or trying to do that in-situ needs finding. So this can look like talking about what cultural aspects do you need to think about before you walk into a place even if I'm going with the whole class, if it's an ICU, I'm only going to take maybe three students to the ICU. Well, part of that is utilitarian. There's only so many people who fit in an ICU. And then part of it is also towards the specific goal that we have to, to really understand people. And if people feel that they're mobbed, people are less likely to really share what it is that is inward. So we actually recommend that they go two at a time and to really be, I think all of these are very regional specific. So if I'm in Tanzania, uh, one thing that I might want to think about is, you know, what language am I using? If I approach someone and I'm speaking in English, I don't know if that's going to be the most appropriate way to address people, especially particularly patients or really grassroots users. So thinking about language, thinking about dressing, thinking about who in your team is the best person to approach this user? 
you know, if it's going to be the head of the hospital, maybe I will speak to them or a faculty member will speak to them. And then if it's going to be another young patient, maybe a student is more appropriate. So there's a lot of on-the-job thinking that has to happen within that realm, but we try to prepare the students beforehand to ensure that they understand what we're going to go through. I think an example is uh, during COVID-19, uh, our students also worked on a ultraviolet germicidal irradiation unit. So they built a unit that can sterilize 25 masks within 15 minutes um, at the at the, at one of Tanzania Hospital's largest um, pediatric oncology wards. And as an educator, you know, I had to put the thought into that. You know, there's going to be children who are very sick within that moment. And to you know, have a discussion with students to understand what sensitivities do they also have to go in with thinking about that and being safe around those students, making sure that they listen within the work that they do. Um, and also one thing that's very critical to human-centered design thinking and educating it is the concept of empathy. Uh, people are not just their problems. So if you're going to speak to a patient, a medical professional or anyone, even though you want that key piece of information that's going to inform your device, really asking questions about people as full human beings, really trying to understand their experience, not just as they encountered the device, but within the entire environment that they work in is really critical to finding really essential data that can inform whatever device you're going to design. So a lot of key preparation is critical, especially for new comers to this. But again, it's a there's a whole branch of human-centered design thinking focused on research and interviewing. And then finally, the concept of empathy and seeing people as full beings and not just the problems that they experience. As you're speaking, I can't help but reflect on some of the um, remarks that I have listened to, you know, Dr. Wangoi Kimari, you know, speak on around research in particularly these sort of informal settlement communities, as we call them, like Madari, where it can often seem a bit extractive. You know, I, places like Madari and Kibera have been studied to no end. And and so, Wangoi, I'm wondering if you have a response to some of what Julia is mentioning. And I, I think, how do you approach then um, building buy-in in these communities where, the, you know, there's this a lot of problems and they're always being asked to talk about their problems, but how do you build in buy-in that embodies all of these um, different um, things that uh, Julia is talking about, empathy, um, um, thinking about the soft skills, if you could just touch on that a bit. For me, research is ultimately all about building relationships because mm -hmm. uh, as Africans, we've been native informants for so long and we can't be native informants. So why would I then as a middle-class person want to go and engage in similar processes in poor urban settlement? And so ultimately, I really encourage people to build relationships. It's not easy. And that way, research is more meaningful. It's shared. I understand when people are doing research as part of a rapid process, whether it's uh, like a task at work, but I would encourage people to build relationships because that way there's the ethics involved are co, there's another ethical barrier and it's important to recognize that ethics besides your university IRB or besides someone else's IRB, you need to have ethics and you need to be attuned to all of the different circumstances that you're facing. But ultimately I would say you need to you need to build relationships. One thing that I think researchers need to recognize is, and I thank you uh, for emphasizing this, but is that you're not, just because you went to school for so long doesn't mean you know everything or anything. You may list, be able to list all of the theories and all of, all of the tools and the methods and the methodologies, but research needs for it, I think, to have more meaning and for it to be grounded, it needs to be as horizontal as possible. And so building relationships is good, trying to engage in collaborative processes, but also recognize the vast knowledge that is located in these communities. And I would tell architects, the person who has an expert, who is an expert in living in a shack dwelling in, in the middle of winter or in the middle of summer, it's not you. Your design doesn't matter here unless you bring forth the, or allow for space to bring forth the experiential knowledge of 
of of all of these different uh, conditions. And so, at when we do participatory action research in uh, at Madare Social Justice Center, we emphasize, as did many of the pioneers of participatory action research, like Paulo Freire, or lots of feminist movements, or lots of queer movements, or lots of disability justice movements. They emphasize that everyone is bringing something to the table, that it has value, but at the same time that people have different skills and all of these different skills have value. And one thing I would emphasize, and I'm trying to think about in my own work, is what is science? Because there's a lot of things that are dismissed for not being science, and Kare, you talked about this. But if we look at even the definition offered by um, the Science Foundation, I'm not sure seems to be pretty big. It talks about how uh, science is really an approach that comes about through systematic study of a situation and then a, a, a form you form a solution through that systemic, systemic study. And if I think of all the amazing things that people do in different spaces, whether it is uh, tapping water or, or having il so-called illegal electricity, that's through systemic study and that's science. And so we should also recognize that science is not just as defined as by uh, the enlightenment, enlightenment period or whatever professional, so-called professional people say, but science is happening every day. Knowledge is knowledges and science is also sciences. It's in the plural. Thanks for that challenge, Rangori. I, I appreciate that. Um, I, I'm always struggling with the definition of, of science and whether I'm a scientist myself as, as a trained social scientist. Do you have any practical advice for social scientists or urban scholars, you know, about how to go about, you know, participatory action or, or building in this buy-in or building trust, um, you know, in science and, and research among the communities that they're working with? And, and here I'm, I'm thinking of the conference that you hosted, I believe, at the end of May, the Utadu workshop. In the brief sessions that I attended, you were talking about approaches to data collection that um, were just really interesting. I think you talked about walk-alongs and some of that other, um, some of those other kinds of practices. So I was wondering if you could tease out, you know, some of the practical, I guess, advice you might have on, on how to better engage with the communities that um, researchers or scientists want to work with or are studying in. And again, I'm not the expert. I learn with people. It's it's always a, a learning process. And I would say I was teaching, and this is not a long-winded African story. I'm getting I'm getting to the point. I promise. But I was teaching a plan a participatory planning course at KU. And one thing that we need to emphasize is that it takes a long time. If you're going to be try and be participatory and horizontal, it takes a really long time. And students are just like, I need to do my fourth year project. Please stop telling me about this participatory process. But we need to be like life. We need to be cognizant that to build relationships, to build a solid foundation, not for research for research sake, but that research that has meaning just for yourself, but collectively in, in context, then that takes a long time. And there are different, there are different ways of doing this. And some of what we were talking about in the Utadu workshop, which in case any of you are urban scholars, we had the first edition. The long name is Urban Theory Africa Doing, but because we're trying to be cool, uh, we call it the Utadu workshop, which people seem to like. I know for many of us, when we think about methods instinctively, because of very orthodox school, we think, okay, key informant interviews or surveys, but there's also walk-alongs where you can walk uh, with people through, especially for geographers or people doing work that's uh, related to space, walking along with people in particular geographies to try and uh, understand their understandings and their meanings attached to certain spaces. There's also participatory videos. In Madare a while ago, there was a forum for young people to draw the future of the city they want. Mm. And young people do all sorts of things that you can imagine. But one thing that was interesting was windows, houses with windows. So you can see, because if you live somewhere where there's no windows, sometimes it's hard to, to see the danger if there's danger. There's mm -hmm. also really some black feminist scholars like uh, Saidia Hartman talk about critical fabulation because the archives are, the archives are really empire. They're built by empire and empire's documents. And so one way to fill in the gaps is to read as much as you can, but create, I wouldn't say fictional, but what she calls critical fabulation. So narratives that kind of try and fill in the gaps 
of of Empire's archives. There's also geographers like Catherine McKittrick because they say research is so exploitative and extractive and mm-hmm. uh, it really, it's, description is not liberation, you know? So mm-hmm. one one method that at least Catherine McKittrick advocates for is doing research by picking up, suturing or bringing together poetry and stories or rumors or all of these different fragments of life and making it a, a kind of a, a quilt, a quilt from where that you bring together to launch uh, research processes or to generate understandings. I'm so happy that you mentioned Saidia Hartman. I'm currently reading my first novel of hers and, and she uses, I guess, what I would call autofiction to basically recreate the lives of Black women in the early 20th century. And it's just quite quite a fantastic from an academic, no less, because um, I tend to expect just, you know, very dry journals and articles. So I appreciate you offering those those examples of, of approaches that social scientists can use who are working within spaces, as you said. And Julie, I guess I would throw the same question to you. Thinking about, you know, product design, what advice do you have for either engineers themselves or educators who are looking to make their science education more practical? What are some of the things that they can be thinking about or, or approaches that they can um, apply in their current work? I think I, I would have separate pieces of advice for makers or engineers and their educators. I think particularly for engineers, one thing I would say that is that they should not look down upon whatever skills that they do have. If you can use a screwdriver, you know, there's something that you can make a difference in. It doesn't necessarily mean, you know, innovating a huge device. I think starting small and beginning to instill the ideas of trial and error, the comfortability with failure, trying different prototyping, trying something, testing, really will help you exercise those skills. And also to challenge yourself within curricula. I think working within um, African higher education, one of the challenges that we've seen is within curricula. And I've, I've heard a lot of students express frustration with, you know, curricula that they feel isn't directly connected to the work that they want to do and is not necessarily, you know, touched into hands-on skills. So what I would say to young engineers is, you know, to go beyond the curriculum and to try to see what, with whatever skills that they have, what solutions that they can try and to become more comfortable with failure, with trying some things and some things not going well, because that actually allows you to learn something new because the product design process is inherently with failure within it. And then towards fellow educators, I think we have such a larger onus, especially within African engineering educators within this generation. Because I feel that Africa is within this, especially during COVID-19, we have seen that the model of importation, of relying on external countries to create the world that we want is not sustainable. And as educators, we have a really large and increasingly large generation of students who need to learn how to create the world that they need to live in. So what I would say to them is to incorporate project-based learning in whatever ways within um, their curriculum. There's multiple resources I'm happy to share, one being um, the Rice University's Invention Education Toolkit, which really lays out how to change your curricula towards more project-based learning and active learning approaches. I think as educators, we need to be comfortable with learning as we go. You know, I think some people... Sometimes we get a really fancy degree and we believe we know a lot. But I think as educators, we need to be comfortable with constantly learning and incorporating whatever new things are coming out within the technology sphere into our curriculum. And then finally, I think as educators, we have to be advocates for students. We have to be working from an administrative level, from a policy level to try to think about how can we create more systematic change with the way, you know, young Africans are educated. Yeah, so that in a nutshell would be my advice to young engineers and also young uh, engineering or technical educators. 
Thanks for that. And I, I appreciate, um, you know, that you, you're talking about curriculum change, um, which I think is one of the questions that, um, not I think, but it is one of the questions that we have, you know, which is, you know, what are some of the ideas that you have for how science training, you know, within African institutions of higher education can can improve? And um, I remember from an earlier conversation, you noting that we have no shortage of ideas or innovators on the continent. So um, the ideas are not lacking. Um, the people to carry out these ideas are not lacking. And perhaps that um, some of the science training we're carrying out might not be meeting um, the needs of, of, of learners and of the communities and for development in general. And so I'm wondering if you have any ideas beyond what you've mentioned on how um, science training could be improved to encourage innovation. Yeah, it's, it's not lost on me that so many African parents push their children to study engineering. And, you know, we've got lots of engineering schools across Africa. But when we look at, you know, whether the road down the street to the medical device you're using to your cell phone, there's not a lot of things being, you know, innovated and manufactured locally. So that we should really question, I think, I think before I even answer the question, I think this is such a fundamental problem that our continent is facing, the idea of how do we create really practical doers within our education system and not excellent theoricists. Uh, from my own experience, um, I've seen students who know a lot of theory, who can quote any theory just as it is written within the textbook, but then when applied, you know, when they're given a problem that was not in the textbook, a problem where they have to apply what it is that they've learned to an actual problem, we see that there's a gap. And I think a critical question is, how do we go from just really great theorists, people who know how to, who know the theory, to people who know how to apply the learned theory to make actionable change? I think part of that is within the curriculum, within introducing project-based learning very early on. You don't have to be in your final year of graduate school to do a research project to create a device. We need to be encouraging people from whatever first semester coursework, how can we include uh, project-based thinking? So rather than, when I say project-based learning or project-based thinking, that's, you know, rather than getting, uh, for example, for assessment, you get a problem set where you have to do five sums, you get a really complex problem. And you have to think about, you have to take multiple sources of information, some that are available within the class, some that are available outside of the classroom to solve a problem, because that's the reality of what actual work in the real world is going to be. So I think there needs to be action from really understanding how we can enable our classrooms to be more project or problem-based learning. I think we also need to think about what are the hands-on skills that we are training our engineers? So does every engineer who graduates from a college know how to use a 3D printer? Can they use CAD programming? Or are we graduating engineers who are very good at differential equations, which are very important to the work of science? So really having that hand in hand. How can we in, in, imbue our engineers and imbue our makers with practical hands-on manufacturing and design skills? The ability from the ability to interview to the ability to choose which type of a nail works best for what material to something more higher level to are they able to program in Python? So moving away again from theory to really practical hands-on skills that can create actionable change. I think when I think also within the education sector or curricula, um, I, I have to think also about uh, entrepreneurship. How are we ensuring that whatever these students create really ends up ending up in the market, whether it's that's to make change within the market and also to employ these students and creating pipelines whereby these engineering skill sets that we are training our students actually get used within the market. I think a lot of the times, sometimes we, we train really great engineers, but then they, there's not enough of a market to swallow up whatever practical skills that they need. Are we creating markets where fourth, um, fourth generation um, technologies are going to be used? Are we creating economies where 3D printing, where machine learning, where all these really higher level skills are going to be applied? So 
within the curriculum from a projects-based learning, hands-on skills, and then also largely within creating a market, supporting entrepreneurship to ensure that these skills remain marketable inside Africa. Thanks for that, Julia. Wengoy, thinking about, you know, what Julia has brought up around science training, and I think we've had discussions around how the Utadu workshop, for instance, is an intervention around a gap that you identified, you know, in science training for um, urban scholars. And from your perspective, you know, what what changes do you think need to happen to create a more accommodating environment that can create social scientists who, you know, embody some of the skills that you've mentioned um, around empathy, around being able to co-create, being able to think critically, and also just sustainability, because we do want sustainable careers for people we want them to develop sustainable solutions for um, the communities they're working with. So what are some of the ideas that are coming up for you around changes that are needed in science training and social sciences? Thanks. The first thing I would say, not, and this is important to say, first, school needs to be accessible to people. Right now, from my understanding, less than 5% of Kenyans have a university degree. Help has been, though the loans have been reduced, but at the University of Nairobi, School fees has been tripled for some degrees. So people just need school to be accessible, hopefully free one day, but it needs to be accessible. And it's the current costs in, in many ways are part of a, a trend since structural adjustment programs, but it's continued on. And so we need to find a way to make school accessible to all. I think it's also important for us to create a spaces or education spaces, university spaces that are collaborative and not wholly competitive. And I think, for example, the Institute for Humanities in Africa is very collaborative, very supportive. And so it's important to encourage that and not just a context where, and not really a context where we're always in competition with each other, but we, we think collaboratively. And we need to support research. Part of how Utadu came up or the Urban Theory Africa doing workshop is because young scholars don't have the monies to to do research, although research will be part of their degrees. Research is required if you're an early career scholar. People don't have money to do research. And so as part of our fundraising for that process, we try to give five scholarships of $1,000. I'm just saying that because I don't know what monetary denomination people are most familiar with, in order to foster learning, to foster science and innovation, but also research that attends to our needs, we need to support it with money. We, I would also say it's important for our scopes to be, or our perspectives to be interdisciplinary. I feel that we, have, we live in many academic silos, and doctors need anthropologists, engineers need sociologists, accountants need... Uh, lots of people. So it's important for our work to be interdisciplinary, also not orthodox. Unfortunately, a lot of our teaching is very orthodox. We need to think about out of the box and to think beyond the whims of the market. We are always thinking we need to do, I know I'm not, maybe when my kid becomes 20, I'd be like, you need to become an just an accountant forever. But we need to think of the beyond the whims of the market. What do our communities need? Not just what can uh, get you a job. And finally, you know, unfortunately, Africa accounts for less than 1% of the research outputs that are out there. So if you look at journal articles, reports that uh, have bearing on all of our different disciplines, we only account for less than 1% of that knowledge production. And so collectively, there's no silver bullet. We need to think about how to address that. that and I think that's part of the work we need to do to make our our science valuable for us, but our, our science have bearing on also global discussions. I appreciate you starting to point out, you know, the challenges with research productivity on the continent, particularly in the sciences, which, as you've mentioned, remains really low. And I also appreciate the mention of some of the structural issues. Um, you know, you're talking about, for instance, availability of research funding, which is one of the areas that Mawazo, when we were thinking about what we wanted to do in the space, realized was uh, there was a deep need there to actually provide the funding for researchers to be able to go out in the field and collect data or buy equipment that they needed in order to continue their research. 
So that's an area where I think that a lot more support is needed. And I think you're then getting to, I guess, what I would call other stakeholders or actors within the education ecosystem. And Julia, um, for you, I know that one question that comes up, you know, when we're, when we're talking about engineers who are actually making devices or products for local markets, um, one of the challenges that that they face is the commercialization, which I think you've called, um, you, you mentioned as translation, right? So how, what are, what are some of the changes that are needed to create more accommodating environments so that the devices and scientific outputs that are being developed actually able to, one, you know, be used by people, be sold locally? Um, if you could just talk about some of uh, the regulatory frameworks that need to change around design of local devices. Just to be clear, uh, when we commercialization is really the last step when you have a really highly minimally valuable product, you've got something that's manufacturable and you're now putting it in the market. And translation is more a longer kind of going it includes that, but also goes back a little bit further from you know you're in a maker space or you're in a lab and you have something that works. And so that includes whatever, in an ideal situation, it would require technical feasibility studies, whatever intellectual property protections that might need, whatever regulatory bodies need to look at it, if it's CE marking, and then finally to commercialization, which would be starting a company, registering it, and then mass production, and then putting it on shelves, proverbially. And what I have experienced is that these challenges on multiple levels on that step, on that entire path. So right at the university, assuming that innovation coming from universities, we've got a problem within the universities where some universities don't have very rigid IP protection laws or very, they may have them, but they are not entirely transparent. And this can happen at an institutional level and also at a national level. I think in Tanzania, when we're doing some IP work, we actually were borrowing for law written for musicians and applying laws originally written for musicians in terms of you know what what rights someone has over an original creation and they fit but there's that gap because you can tell that the law was not created with this particular process in mind so i think when we think about that it's uh, how do we ensure that we have ways in which students can protect whatever devices they make, both at an institutional level and also at a national level, and one that you know someone can go and the law can protect their rights over whatever device they have. We have requirements inside the institution still with, are we having faculty members and curricula that encourages innovation rather than recreation of the old? Do we have faculty members who are going to encourage students to do things that may not necessarily fit into the class, but are required for whoever the final user is. And then next we have regulatory bodies. So not just after you've protected it, you need to be sure that it's safe and is required. And within a lot of African countries, it's difficult to get something as simple as CE marking. So if you look at any electrical device you have, there's a little sign that says CE marking, and it means it has met specific standards that are required within the electrical world. And when I was working in Tanzania, we were told that we had to export our device, get it CE marked outside of Tanzania, and then re-import it back because those facilities didn't exist within the country. And that's that means that any electronic device that's going to be needed to be used by a consumer, you're going to have to export it and import it back. So ensuring that we have regulatory processes and also regulatory experts, experts who know how to give these standards and make meet these standards. Then the next levels of difficulty is within the mass manufacturing part. And this is where we really need um, a lot of investment locally. And as underlined during COVID-19 is when we, it's easy to make one device, you might be able to make 10 devices, but what happens when you need to make 10,000 of whatever device you're making at scale? Do we have the machines locally that are able to produce this? Again, we've got a situation where people will import, export designs to most probably China and then import them back. And the person who bears that cost is this user who a lot of the time with the work that I'm doing in resource limited settings is already really cash strapped. And by exporting the device and importing it again, you're really adding additional 
a price point onto that that's not adding to the value of the final product. So there's a level within the mass manufacturing industry. So calling on whoever the investors or also um, policymakers and the governments to try to really focus on how can we improve local manufacturing capabilities within our countries. And the final part, which is the commercialization, is are we training young makers to know how to start a business? Do we have access to capital for people who have really good ideas that can have traction in the market to start off an idea and really run it on a commercial uh, level? So I think it's an excellent opportunity that has multi-level intervention all the way from the institution from the to the law in terms of IP protection, regulatory bodies, interning standard, standards of all of these devices, mass manufacturing, and then finally also within within the commercialization space. And whenever anyone doubts, we need to remember, I think, the struggles of COVID-19 and what happened when we couldn't import everything in. So really ensuring that we get to a point of self, like self, self resilience, or you know, self, self sustainability, where we are able to create everything that we, or at least, is more of what it is that we need locally with, within Africa. Just in brief summary, Julia, you talked about how you know your experiences growing up and and asking questions about why nothing that you saw was designed to respond to the environment in which you lived in as being one of these driving forces in how you ended up doing engineering and working on product design. And and Wangoi, as well, you talked about just your experiences of living in Nairobi, which if you have not lived here, um, can be a very frustrating experience and a very jarring experience and how this made you want to ask questions about the urban space and how it was organized. And uh, what comes through for me um, between these two threads is just how, again, curiosity-driven science as, as uh, as such a place to begin to incubate to encourage individuals, learners, ourselves to just ask questions um, about the places and the things that we're interacting with and and to seek those answers. And that in itself is a form of, of scientific inquisition, right? Julia, you talked about human-centered design really requiring uh, people to have soft skills, talked about paying attention to the language that we are using and the cultural context in which we are engaging with um, the communities we're working with. For instance, how are you dressed? What is the hierarchy of power here? Who needs to be speaking at any given time? You also talked about empathy. And Wangoi, you also touched about this, you know, that people are more than their problems and that we have to do more than just describe. Um, Description is not liberation, I think is what you said, Wangoi, which is a very powerful quotation. And then in terms of looking at at how we can change the environments in which we are learning um, how to engage in, in research or scientific approaches, we talked about um, developing comfortability with failure. We talked about changes to curriculum that can um, encourage more problem-based learning, that can also encourage creative thinking. Um, we talked about thinking outside of the box and thinking outside of the whims of the market. We also talked about just more hands-on training and accessibility of higher education, which remains a big, big challenge. And I really appreciate that you brought that out, Wangoi, that school needs to be affordable and hopefully free one day. Uh, also talked about the need for university spaces and I guess research institutions more broadly to be collaborative rather than competitive and the role of interdisciplinary approaches because all of the fields work together to create um, better futures for all of us. And then last, we just touched a bit on some of what the challenges or barriers remain the regulatory system that innovation, the innovation ecosystem exists within and the needs for a new set of experts and laws that are actually able to allow innovators to then take their products to market. We spend a lot of time focusing on, you know, what the challenges are, what some of the barriers are. And I think sometimes these kinds of conversations can feel a bit bleak. So I would be curious to hear from Julia and Wangoi, and I'll start with you, Wangoi. Where are you finding hope in your work or what gives you hope about the work that you are doing and that kind of keeps you going? I think it's always important to celebrate and also recognize the diverse and really powerful work that young people are doing and other people are doing. When it comes to community research, many social justice centers in Kenya are taking up participatory research to talk about various issues from access to education, access to housing. That's really powerful. 
And I'm also inspired by the questions that young people have and that they pose in various spaces that really go against the grain and are, are charging against orthodox narrations of what life should be like. And so just off the bat and just in response to your question, I'm really inspired by all of this collective and participatory education, but also the the building up of, and I would say particular to justice centers, education spaces that are outside the university and that are really informing debates, whether it's now about food prices or whether it's debates about access to water. I think that's those are also really important. I think on my end, as an educator, students are honestly an unending source of hope for me. It's incredible to see just a short design thinking or, you know, hands-on skills, just everything that the students create. I'm very lucky to have very rewarding work in that regard, where I get to be surrounded by the work that young engineers could do within their communities. Just a few weeks ago, I found out that one student who had gone through one of the design programs I learned their device had won the uh, national Makisatu competition as a national design competition in Tanzania as the best device that had come out uh, of the country for that year. It was a device made directly with users at a national hospital. Um, so I think that these small wins and also the understanding that the change has already begun and that what we are calling for is not really a beginning of transformation, but the continuing continuation of transformation and also the support for even greater transformation. So that really is um, a ubiquitous source of hope for me. To find out more about our guest, find links to information shared in this episode, or to listen again, you can find us permanently on the Nairobi Ideas podcast page at mawazoinstitute.org backslash podcast. You can also subscribe to the Nairobi Ideas podcast on YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Nairobi Ideas podcast is brought to you by the Mawazo Institute. We are a Nairobi-based research organization that supports early career women researchers as they work to find solutions to local and global development challenges.